0: You know, the beautiful thing about that hymn is that after the first verse, the rest of the verses are God speaking to us. You know, um, so often, so much of our worship is praying the things God says to us back to Him and singing what He says to us back to Him. It's an indispensable and beautiful and encouraging, comforting aspect of worship. But to continue in our worship... Worship is not just singing. Worship is not just the time before the sermon. Worship is also when we hear God's word and we listen to its proclamation. And so, if you will please take a Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we continue to worship God through his word. We're continuing our series that we just started through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Last week I said, well, verses 1 through 3 are Paul's introduction to the epistle. And uh, truth be known, the same could be said about this week's passage as well. Verses 4 through 9 kind of also is an introduction to this epistle. And so if you take the last three weeks together, today we conclude like basically the three part introduction to this epistle. Like a, like a good Baptist, right? You know, let's, let's squeeze every ounce of this out of it that we can get. Um, but we see in verses 4 through 9 kind of the foundation for rightly applying and understanding the rest of everything in this letter. And so let's give ourselves to it. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, this is God's word, let's receive it in faith. by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we too trust in the grace that has been given to us in Christ. We too await the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ at the last day. And So we too ask that you would come and confirm the word of Christ among us, That you might sustain us and prepare us to be found guilty at the day of his return. Lord, we trust in your faithfulness and we call upon you as the faithful God this morning. Be faithful in our midst through the Holy Spirit. By the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You've probably heard it said many times that our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness. I did some research on this phrase, and as far as I could tell, it originated with Shakespeare. But he said it quite uh, slightly differently. Shakespeare wrote, your greatest strength begets your greatest weakness. In other words, Shakespeare is saying that as our, gr- our strengths grow and they morph like a factory, they begin to produce things that become also our greatest weakness the person who doesn't see this doesn't recognize this as a common struggle in life most likely will see their greatest strength eventually lead to their ruin well this is kind of similar to how the apostle Paul opens this epistle here to the church in Corinth I want you to notice in verse five he thanks God that in every way they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge when we read later on in this letter, and even when we read into 2 Corinthians, it is precisely their speech and their obsession with so-called knowledge that was causing so much sin and havoc in the church. Just think about how amazing this is then. That Paul thanks God for the very things that, there were, being, that were being sinfully abused in the church. To me, it kind of sounds like Complimenting an alcoholic on their amazing taste in fine wine, right? I said this a few weeks ago, but this isn't normally how we would confront sin in error, is it? Don't often, when something good is being abused, don't we tend to skip over the good part? Because we're afraid of encouraging them to continue abusing it? Don't we often require total abstinence and we set up Fences around the law of God in order that they won't abuse it instead of appreciating and acknowledging the good that's in it and how something good can be rightly used instead of wrongly used? When a believer is distorting the gifts and the good things that God has given them, don't we tend to always just focus on the negative and try to get them to stop? Right, It's better than not to have all speech and all knowledge rather than to use it sinfully, we might say. Well, here's where we can learn something from the Spirit of God writing through the Apostle Paul. Here we can learn from how Paul was a tremendously patient church leader. Probably because he was always well aware of his own sin and ignorance before the Damascus road. But here we can learn as well, Paul was also a tremendous encourager. He illustrates time and time again what it means to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. And that's kind of the truth behind this idea that our greatest strength begets our greatest weakness. For to face our greatest weakness, we need the encouragement that not all is lost. We need the assurance that at least we have the fundamentals necessary in order to right the ship. We need to hope that, well, we started right, we're on the right path, even if we got sidetracked a little bit. We're still headed in the right direction. And that's what Paul is doing here with this opening Thanksgiving. Of course, you can probably see Paul here is continuing to Lay the theological groundwork upon which he will then begin to build the house, as it were. He will begin to then address all of the specific sins and problems in the church. You need a solid foundation first. He also seeks to uh, to, to lay the the practical groundwork as well. The practical in the sense of, I thank God for your giftedness. But but later, let's talk about not taking those things too far. In all of this, Paul wants to assure them of his goodwill toward them. He wants to assure them of his ultimate hope for them. He doesn't want to punish them or, or force them to obey and comply at the point of a bayonet. He wants to assure them of his love for them. And he wants to call them to remember how they started so well so that they can get back on that path. And ultimately here, Paul doesn't write for himself or for his own desires or even to share his own opinions. It's clear from these verses that God is the focus of everything. God is the giver of grace. God as the one who gives spiritual gifts. God is the one who will preserve and keep them to the end. Brethren, this is incredibly helpful for us. Because Paul's words help us know how we too can be an encourager towards others, even when we're called to confront sin and error. But Paul's words also serve as encouragement to us for when we fall into sin. Because this is how God deals with us as well. The Lord gives grace. The Lord gives gifts, even when we sometimes fall into sin and abuse them. And the best part about this is, That if He has given us grace and He has given us gifts, He has promised to complete what He began in us. And He will preserve us and sustain us blameless at the last day. He will not abandon us in the end. And so brethren, if He's given us gifts in our conversion and He's promised to sustain us to the end that we might be found blameless Won't he give us sustaining grace in the present? That's the message that we see here from this passage today. And that actually serves as our outline as well. Here, Paul seeks to encourage the church, even while they are far from what they should be. He seeks to encourage them by recalling the past, considering the future as motivation and encouragement for the present. So let's look at these three aspects of this passage. And we'll begin first to think about how Paul encourages them by recalling God's work in the past. He begins by recalling God's work among them in the past. We see this in verses 4 through the first part of of verse 7. But look again just at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Some have expressed astonishment that Paul gives thanks. Given everything going on in this church. Uh, I don't need to re-list all the horrific sin and immorality, chaos and division that was going on. Some have even suggested that Paul was insincere. insincere that he's just trying to butter them up a little bit so he can drop the hammer a little bit later. But I think this fails to account just for for how giving thanks is pleasing to God, but it's also a very practical way of manifesting our love and appreciation and affection for other people. Despite all the sins and problems going on in this church, Paul sees the evidence of true grace in their midst, and he doesn't overlook that. We can learn a lot from this just by following his example here. We can learn how we too are to be regular in giving thanks for the other believers in our life. Even those who have fallen into sin. Even those who have perhaps hurt us in many ways. We can learn here that we should never just always focus on the negative, on what needs to improve, on where they need to change, on how they need to repent. We're called to sincerely see and acknowledge and thank God for the positive as well. In fact, I'm reminded here even of when we're called to pray for those governing authorities over us, Paul includes with thanksgiving. We give thanks even when wicked men rule over us because in some respect, it's not like it's impossible to find something good in their reign and in their rule. Even if they just protect us from foreign armies. Thanksgiving is a regular part of the Christian life. It doesn't have to be something perfect in order to give thanks for it. And so, let us acknowledge the good here. I, mean, I would even take it a step further and say, you know, this is often an indicator of whether you really love someone. Love sees the good in people. Love fights and strives and strains to seek and define and appreciate the good in people, even if the, the bad outweighs it. Love gives thanks for the good in people, even uh, if, if it's seemingly small and insignificant. And, and brethren, love is the necessary prerequisite if you have any hope for leading people to change. You'll never change anyone without loving them first. You're not going to change anyone by giving them the law and telling them what they need to do. By telling them where they need to shape up. By informing them of where they're falling short. That doesn't change anybody. Even if the law is necessary at times. Love is a prerequisite for the change of anyone that we seek to change in accordance for true spiritual good in the Gospel. And that's how we're called to relate to people around us. That's what Paul manifests here. His love for them, long before he even utters one word of correction. Know that I love you and I see the good in you. But what exactly does he give thanks for? Um, I want you to notice he starts broad, but then he narrows his focus. He starts broad in verse 4 by being thankful for the grace of God that was given them in Christ Jesus. This is, of course, speaking of their conversion. Yes, they're not what they should be. They've fallen off track, but praise God, they are united to Christ in faith. And the existence of this genuine faith far outweighs any disappointment He has with them. Again, informing us how we should relate to other people, other believers who frustrate and discourage um, and hurt us. Let us see their faith as far outweighing any negative in them. But then he narrows his focus to the spiritual gifts. Look at verse 5 to the first part of verse 7. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. I'm thankful that you are enriched in Christ What a beautiful expression here. That in Christ we are rich. The gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit are the most valuable and precious riches in this world. It's treasure in heaven. It's treasure and inheritance that we will never lose. But what exactly are the concrete expressions of that here? They are enriched in every way in all sorts of ways they are enriched with all speech and all knowledge all speech refers to the ability to articulate the truth about god for his glory and for the good of others that means in corinth there was many gifts there were many gifts of teaching and preaching of course we know there was also prophecy and tongues at that time all speech would also refer to just bearing witness, evangelism, speaking the truth in love, counseling. And we know it's coupled here with all knowledge, like it's not just enough to have a golden tongue, to be fluent, um, smooth talk, but you've got to have something worth saying as well, so it includes all knowledge. This, this refers to their understanding of biblical truth. The illumination of the Holy Spirit. Insight into things of God. Insight into the mystery of the Gospel. His will. So all speech and all knowledge, he's saying this church was particularly gifted in comprehending biblical truth and communicating it in various ways. There was a strong teaching and preaching and counseling and biblical wisdom ministry contingent within the church. Even to the point in verse 7, he says you're not lacking in any gift. There's nothing that they needed that they lacked. There were no spiritual gift that they were short of. God had provided everything they needed for life and godliness. The correction that He's going to offer to them later was not because God had failed to provide something that they needed. I think when we take this together, we can see why Paul calls this a true church. You know, we might think sometimes, well, let's see, they were abusing the Lord's Supper, they were factions, they were putting up with sexual immorality. How is this a true church? Well, because even though they were a mess ethically and morally, the truth was present in their midst. Martin Luther has a phenomenal section in his commentary on this, actually. The truth was being proclaimed in all speech, in all knowledge, in all giftedness. And wherever the truth is present, the true church is there. It's when the church denies the truth. Not just fails to live in accordance with it, but denies it. That the lampstand of Christ is removed. So Paul says, you know, you are a true church. You have the right doctrine. So I know that eventually your behavior is going to fall in line. Don't you see then how God has gifted you? Don't you see the gifts that He's gifted you with? Don't you see as He looks back at the past, at the encouragement um, uh, for the present? Look back at what God has done to pour out His Spirit on you. But here though, it's really with this last phrase that He takes it up one more notch. So they have all gifts, and they have sound doctrine, and they have edifying teaching, but we might ask, how did this come about? How were these gifts bestowed on the church? How were they stirred up? Who gets the credit? That's going to be an important question later in the book. Have you built yourself up? Are you such a great speaker? Are you such a great theologian? Are you such a great counselor? Are you have such great biblical insight because of your striving, your effort, your work? That's why he says in verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. This is the means by which all speech and all knowledge and all gifts were poured out on the church. What does this mean? Testimony is legal language. It's bearing witness. Testimony is used frequently in the New Testament to refer to the preaching of the gospel. It's a synonym for preaching. In fact, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul speaks of the testimony of God in their midst. God, bearing testimony, proclaimed to them through the preaching. So for this reason, I, I prefer, absolutely prefer to translate this phrase, the testimony of Christ, rather than the testimony about Christ. could be either one. Because Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks often of bearing witness of Himself and that His testimony is true. In the rest of the New Testament, we read that Christ speaks through the preaching of His Word. Paul then is saying that their enrichment and their conversion and their gifts of the Spirit came to them through the preaching of the Word. Through the preaching of the Gospel, Christ bore witness among them. Through the preaching of the Gospel, Christ's words were confirmed among them to be true through the gifts and the graces and the conversion that was poured out in their midst. This is how Paul is saying, look, Even when I'm praising you for what's good in your midst, or praising God for what's good in your midst, the focus is not on you. I'm praising Him, not you. And I'm recalling how you were a passive recipient to everything that you enjoy in the Christian life. God in Christ changed your life. He invaded your world. He gave you all your wisdom, all your insight, all your speaking and knowledge gifts freely of His grace. And you can take credit for none of it. He wants them to see that through the ordinary and simple preaching of the Word, the Gospel flourishes You need to see that the ordinary preaching of the Word is far more important than tongues and prophecies and everything else going on in the church. See how God has blessed you. So, so he looks back. Look at what God has done as a means for having a God-centered perspective on all things. And Brothers and sisters, that should be an encouragement to us as well. To look back at your own life. How were you brought to faith in Christ? Look at the mercy that He has shown you. How has God poured out His Spirit upon our church? How has He blessed you according to free grace? This is how we have a God-centered, Christ-centered perspective on all things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. He alone has given us everything needed for life and godliness. And it all comes through the simple and ordinary ministry of the word, this message of the cross that is the power of God and the salvation. So he seeks to encourage them by looking back. Secondly, there's more to this before we can apply it fully. He now encourages them by emphasizing God's promise for the future. By emphasizing God's promise for the future. We see this at the end of verse 7 through verse 8. Even as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the particular hallmarks of the Psalms, you know, the Psalms often deal with despair and downcast, struggling believers, uh, persecuted, poor, humble, broken hearted. One of the hallmarks of the Psalms is that they repeatedly, often, most often, in one even very short psalm, look back at God's faithfulness as a proof and guarantee of His future deliverance. And the psalmist lives between two worlds, as it were. What God has done as an indicator of what God is doing. And that's what Paul does here. That's why he goes from the past, don't you see you were enriched now he just runs all the way to the future to the end of time. To the day of Christ Jesus. brother. this is a heartbeat of godly encouragement and motivation in the present. The Christian life is lived in remembrance of what Christ has done. And the Christian life is lived in great expectation of what He will do. The Christian life constantly calls us to look back at the cross And frame our lives around it. But also to look forward to the last day. And live and prepare ourselves for it. How do we do this then? Why is this important for the Corinthian church? Well think about the flow of thought here. You have every spiritual gift. But you wait for the revealing of Christ. And the verdict of that last day. The sort of point in this is. No matter how gifted you are, you know you you still haven't arrived. No matter how gifted you are, don't you know that the full inheritance waits? Don't you know that the gifts you have are but the first fruits? They're but the foretaste of what ultimately is to come? Don't you know there's a greater knowledge to come? That's where he's going to go later uh, in the book. When we will see the Lord face to face. Right now we see through a glass dimly. Don't you know that this knowledge that you have is but in part and it awaits the full revelation? Don't you know that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit... Has begun now, but ultimately it's, the, it's that day of Christ that creation longs and groans for. Romans 8, we read it earlier. When all things are made new, don't you know that is the reality? That is the consummation? What you're seeing and experiencing now is just something small to point us and help us to anticipate that what's to come. It's getting their eyes off the present. Is getting their eyes off themselves. And exactly what is to come, it, it's beautiful, this phrase here that God will sustain us and find us guilt, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to take another quibble here with the ESV. I apologize. I've been to seminary. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, I don't like the ESV here, it translates this word sustain, who will sustain you um, to the end. Well, I don't like this because this is the same Greek word that's used in verse 6, confirmed among you. And the ESV, you miss the parallel, the intentional parallel that Paul is drawing here. He's saying that through the preaching and the pouring out of the gifts of the Spirit, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you and the revealing of Jesus Christ, He will confirm you to the end. It's a play on words, but it's more importantly a beautiful kind of bookend of the Christian life. One is a proof of the other. The fact that you have faith and the gifts of the Spirit now are, are, the, are the proof that He will find you blameless at the end is basically what Paul is saying. And isn't that our hope and encouragement? Our confidence that at the last day God will find us blameless when we stand before the judge of all the earth? The proof of that is whether He's given you saving faith right now. The proof that you will be found blameless is in the gift and dwelling of the Holy Spirit right now. How is that Holy Spirit manifested chiefly in professing faith in Christ, but also in the fact that you're sorry over your sin and you can't live with it. Also in the fact that you strive, the flesh wars against the Spirit. You're not passive. You don't just give yourself to the things of this world. It's proof in the fact that no matter how small or how insignificant, your love of Christ and others is is growing in some respect. Right? That, 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 That you're learning to put off sin and live to righteousness. That you love being around the people of God and the word of God. This is the proof that the Holy Spirit indwells you. And if the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have a guarantee that you will be found blameless at the last day. You have a guarantee that Christ will sustain you to the last day. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit is the agent of new creation? Romans 8 again. That's why we read it earlier. The Holy Spirit is the agent of new creation. If He has given you faith and the knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you and that work of new creation has begun in you. It's already begun. You don't wait for that last day for new creation to begin. It's already started in you right now. You are beginning to be made new and that process will continue for all of eternity. course guiltless on the day of Christ Jesus or blameless. This is legal language. It means free of reproach. It means free of accusation. Free of condemnation. There's no sin. There's no apostasy. There's no uncleanness that can be brought against you. Think about that. Think about your sin this past week. How can God find you guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus? Because you're guilty. Trust me. This is legal language. It's forensic. It's forensic. It's forensic justification by faith, described in different words. Because at the last day, if you are in Christ, God will find you guiltless in the day of Christ, not because of your virtue, not because of your righteousness, not because of your efforts, your behavior, your striving. He will find you guiltless. By the virtue of the blameless and guiltless Lord Jesus Christ. His obedience and His blood. Given, imputed to you. Given to you as a gift received by faith. And it will cover all of your sins. That's the only way we can stand before a divine judge. That's the only way we will be found guiltless in the day of Christ. Is if we are in Him. Him. It should be obvious considering how the rest of the epistle, literally from verse 10 through the next 16 chapters, Paul is going to indict them for their sin. How can he say they're going to be guiltless? How can he say? Because it's not based on them. It's based upon Christ and they're receiving Him by faith. So the point here then is that we know the divine verdict uttered then, because the Holy Spirit has brought this verdict into our age, into this day, and He's announced it over you now. That was announced over you in your baptism. The verdict of blameless. As you were baptized, as you cling to Christ by faith, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the new creation you have no reason to doubt or wonder what that last verdict will be because you've already heard it. Is there anything more encouraging than that? One fell swoop, then Paul's like, this isn't your doing, it's God's doing. The present isn't your full inheritance. It awaits the last day. So all of your gifts and graces must be orientated towards that. Look through the lens of the cross. Look through the lens of the final consummation. And this is your encouragement in the present. To take heart. To not despair. To press on. To forsake sin. To pursue righteousness. Look to the beginning. Look to the end. Offer yourself joyfully as a living sacrifice. Well, that's exactly how Paul concludes here in verse 9. Third and finally... He encourages the church with his God's work in the past and God's promise for the future, but now, thirdly, God's sustaining grace in the present. God's sustaining grace in the present. Again, I'm just going to point out the obvious. It should go without saying. All the focus here has been on God. God's work in the past, God's promise for the future, God's pouring out of gifts and graces, God's sustaining, God confirming, God revealing. God everything. Is it any wonder then that he finally talks about the present? That God's the actor there as well? That's why he begins verse 9 by saying God is faithful. God is faithful. Corinthians, don't you know that my hope for you, my confidence for you is not based upon you Your repentance, you're getting your act together, you shaping up as a church, you obeying my words, you persevering to the end, you resolving to stand firm. My hope for you, my confidence for you, is not in your giftedness just because you know the Gospel and are eloquent in proclaiming it. It is not in your usefulness for Christ's Kingdom. It is not in your strength and in your resolve. My hope for you is because God is faithful he is immutable he is unchanging he can be entirely dependent upon and trusted and he will sustain you to the end how easy it is to get bogged down in the present with our failures and our sins and our struggles. How easy it is to let those things color our perspective, our entire perspective. How easy it is to lose sight of God in this all, whether we're talking about our sin and failures or the failures and sins of others. That's why we need to be reoriented this morning to God and His faithfulness. We need to see this God who swears by His own name and will not change. The, the Lord Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. The one who has said, the work that I have begun, I will bring it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. The God who says, my gifts and my calling are irrevocable. The God in Romans 8, as we heard earlier, who predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies an unbroken chain of redemption. There is, it is impossible to experience any one of those things and not experience them all. How often do we look at the church? Do we look at other believers? Do we look at ourselves and fail to let God and His character frame our perspective because we're focused on the creature? Paul is fixated upon God. Even in the face of a disorderly and sinful church. But again, the point at hand, how is God's faithfulness demonstrated here in the present? Well, we'll think about this verse. God is faithful by whom you were called, okay, that's past tense, into the fellowship of His Son. That's present tense. Fellowship. Fellowship. The present is found in the fellowship that believers now enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the key to all of our present encouragement and faithfulness. Fellowship entails communion and union. It's a word that can be used, obviously, covenantally. Certainly be used in relation to marriage. When you get married, a couple, the man and the wife, become one. They share all things in common. Everything that is the wife's becomes the husband's. Everything that's the husband's becomes the wife's. And they live a communion and a sharing and a participation in one another. And that's what this gets at in relation to our participation and sharing in Jesus Christ. Here I want to read from John Calvin what he says at this point. Listen to Calvin. Calvin. He says, the moment we receive Christ by faith, as He offers Himself in the gospel, we become truly members of His body, and life flows into us from Him as our head. He continues, this is the sacred unity by which the Son of God engrafts us into His body to communicate to us all that is His, and thus we come to share in every blessing. And then he makes application. When Christians look at themselves, they find only reason for trembling, or rather despair. But because they have been called into the fellowship with Christ, they ought to think of themselves in no other way than as members of Jesus Christ, recognizing all the blessings of Jesus Christ as their very own. Brethren, that's our hope for the present. That in our union with Christ, we have fellowship with Him. And we share and participate in the life giving nourishment, the blood, the nourishment, the union, the oneness of Jesus Christ as He communicates His divine blessings to us in the church, His body. You know the metaphors the vine and the branches. You know the Lord's Supper we speak of. We eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord, spiritually speaking. You know the metaphors. I am the bread of heaven. The manna daily given to you to nourish your bodies. You know John 6. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. This is where it all comes together. The past acts of God preach to us His love for us. The future promises of God motivate us and fill us with hope as the joy that is set before us. And the present fellowship and communion that we have in Christ feeds and nourishes and sustains us to face whatever it is that God has given us to face today. Everything else in the Christian life, everything else in this book is all built on this foundation You can't attack any sin, any weakness, any error, any nothing without looking back to the cross, forward to the future, and present to the fellowship that we have with Christ. Now, that is the only context to deal with every issue in the Christian life. That is the only true motivation for godly living that flows out of thanksgiving, as Paul illustrates for us here. To love God for how He has loved us. All the focus being on God, and, and in case you didn't min, uh, miss, the, uh, in case you didn't see as well, if you just look back to the opening nine verses, the name of Jesus Christ is referenced ten times in nine verses. See what I mean when we talk about Christ-centeredness as the essence of the Christian life. Chrysostom says here that Paul lingers lovingly over the name of Christ and he fastens the church to Christ as with nails. He's hammering us in to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, don't you see everything is found in Him? Well, brethren, is it true then that our greatest strength begets our greatest weakness? Absolutely. No matter what that strength is, if you are focused on the gift rather than the giver, weaknesses will fall upon you like a flood. That's the beauty of the gospel, though, isn't it? That when we see anything as our strength, right? Our wisdom, our resolve, our discipline, our knowledge, our willpower, you know, that's good reformed people, right? We have a problem and we get a stack of books and we read them. And we say, now I can can tackle anything. We think that reading is the answer to all of our problems. And that's pathetic. It's not. When we see anything as our greatest strength, even the spiritual gifts that God has given us, it will quickly become our greatest weakness. But what what if when we see Christ as our greatest strength? And not only our strength, but that it's in our weakness, emptied of ourselves, that we are then made strong. That's what the Gospel calls us to today. So no matter what you're facing, sin, struggle, discouragement, despair, frustration, the message today is a message as it always is. Look back to the cross, look forward to His coming, and see how the ordinary, simple means of grace, preaching, teaching prayer worship and the lord's supper are the means by which the fellowship of christ is cultivated and the nourishment that flows from his life is communicated to you specifically us together as the body of christ this is the key and foundation to face whatever it is that god has called us to face today Brother, may God give us wisdom and understanding, but also the gift of the Spirit to receive and enjoy these things today. Amen. Let's pray.